Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. Alex, did you go sport climbing this week? Yeah, yesterday and today and the day before. So yeah, every day. Where did you go? Uh, two days ago, I went to Seeker 13, a little sport crag in Red Rock. Yesterday, I went to the Clear Light Cave on Mount Potosi, a little limestone cave. And today, I'm going to another little sandstone wall with Sonny. So I'm guessing you've got a project. I mean, you probably said, I know, but did you did you fall off of it again? Yeah. No, I've, I have... I've spent hours falling off of a, a single section of this one sport route. Okay, next question. Bear with me. Did you lower back to the ground after you fell off? No, I fall off and then I make my way back up the rope, which I, I'm falling into free space because it's a cave. So depending on how far I fall each time, it's varying degrees of difficulty to get back to the rock. But then I just pull back up the rope, try the move over and over and over. I mean, I've tried this one series of moves so many times. So you're you're actually saying that you practice the moves to get better at them? Well, I'm doing so poorly on the sequence that it's hard to even call it practice, but I'm working my way through different ways trying to figure out how to do the move. Has it gotten any easier? Uh, yeah, you know, honestly it has actually. Yesterday I made my first real breakthrough where I at least was doing the sequence, but I was still falling off the end of it. So through this process of working on this project, going, falling off, pulling back up, hanging, practicing, do you in any way whatsoever feel guilty about it or conflicted morally about how you are climbing? Like, have you lost friends over it? Or are you worried that (laughs) you're a bad person? Well, it does make me feel like I'm a bad rock climber because I can't do the sequence, but I definitely don't even think about the ethics involved. I mean, the the rules, the the tradition of it, whatever. I mean, I don't even think about what it means for climbing. I just wish that I wasn't falling off so much. There was a period in our sport where if you were climbing on an overhanging cave, hanging on the rope from bolts that were put in on rappel, not lowering to the ground after each move, you would have been kicked out of the community. You'd be shamed on social media, had existed, called a cheater. People got into fistfights over this stuff. And now, the tactics that would have been considered cheating 40 years ago, they're just like how we climb. I don't know. I mean, you don't think that's just standard evolution of climbing well i think it was i think it was different because it didn't this didn't shift gradually over decades it really happened over the course of a few seasons in the mid-1980s where all of a sudden the old norms just sort of crumble it was like all of a sudden climbers realized like they'd been holding themselves back for the sake of history or the egos of an older generation the status quo changes when someone decides to break the rules. In the early 1980s, far away from Yosemite's spotlight, on a crumbly backwater cliff, an unknown climber was about to change the sport by breaking some of its most sacred tenets. Really, he just wanted to go climbing. Today, we are all very grateful he did. Today we talk to Alan Watts, arguably the father of American sport climbing. There's an upside and a downside to every risk we take. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzgerald. You're listening to Climbing Gold.
I always was called a cheater. You were cheating. You were cheating. You were cheating. And I, I was like, no, I'm not cheating. And But then a few years ago, I was giving a talk and I actually looked up the definition of cheating in the dictionary. And it was like to gain an advantage by breaking rules. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's exactly what I was doing. I was gaining an advantage by breaking the rules. Well, my name is Alan Watts. I'm 61 years old, and I've been climbing since I was 14 at Smith Rock, starting in early 1975. <laughs> that's that's pretty pretty experienced climber. Yeah, things have changed over the years, that's for sure. Yeah. So, how did you get started? Um, you know, my dad climbed some. He he was a uh, he did a few first ascents at Smith Rock, uh, like way back when I was born, 1960. Um, but more of a mountain climber, an alpine climber. So I just grew up in a family that what we did in the summer is we just, uh, the family just went on hikes and climbed mountains. I was 10 years old and I was already starting to buy climbing equipment. Just somehow I decided without ever being a rock climber that that's what I wanted to be. 12 years old, I couldn't uh, drive a car and and go up to, to climb mountains, but Smith Rock was there. So it's like, well, I'll start going to Smith Rock. And I met somebody in high school who had climbed a little bit. Can you describe Smith Rock in the 70s? I mean, it, it, it was not on any map of, it wasn't where people went. It wasn't any destination, not just for climbing, but even for just a sightseeing destination or going to have a picnic. Or It's only very, very local people did it. Central Oregon was very different back then. Today, hundreds of thousands of people visit Smith Rock every year. It's one of the most visited parks in Oregon. Many of them are climbers. Back then, Bend and Redmond, they were sleepy little agricultural towns, not cities. And if a climber did happen to stumble into Smith in the 1970s, they were met with a hard reality. The rock kind of sucked. It could be loose and dangerous. And using the same tactics that someone might have applied in Yosemite or Tuolumne would probably result in an accident. My memory is not that good for what I did Two or three days ago, but as far as climbing, I I, I remember every everything. First route I ever climbed was the south. Uh, tried to climb the southeast face of the monument. It's a started up at the five six unprotected chimney, a route that has the reputation of being the worst route at Smith Rock. There weren't a lot of routes, and everybody they were all of course trad routes. And uh, the person I was climbing with, he had a rope, and I had. A harness and, and some equipment, but he really didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And people typically learned by trial and error. You didn't, there was nobody, there were no classes. There was no gyms, of course. You just, you just went climbing and uh, tried to figure it out. Pretty soon, Alan had climbed a lot of what there was. Smith lagged behind the standards of the day with just a handful of 511s on sharp cracks. It had these wide-open, beautiful faces that we know it for today, but the closer you got, they were crumbly with little protection. Pioneering them with the agreed-upon tactics would likely end with a trip to a hospital. There were no routes, but I bouldered. And I, I bouldered with uh, Chris Jones, who was a super strong, accomplished climber who did a lot of stuff in Colorado. I mean, I worked at it hard. I mean, that was what I did. Bouldering was, that was my my thing, just... Every day, I had all these routes that I wanted to do, all these projects, little bouldering projects, and that's that's what climbing was. And really, Smith Rock is not a great bouldering area. So I was living 
full-time devoted to this place that was a terrible crack climbing area, a terrible bouldering area. It was never any, uh, didn't, it wasn't like there was a intellectual breakthrough. Like, it's like, if I want to climb these routes, this is the only way to do it. And it was just pretty obvious. And there was nobody to tell me no. Alex, we should probably quickly explain what rap bolting is. Bolting cliffs on rappel allows you to climb on rock that you wouldn't be able to climb on ground up because the rock is too chossy or too friable. Because at a certain level, it's too dangerous to go ground up on certain routes because there's too much rock falling down on your belay or too much rock that might cut your rope. Whereas when you come in from above and do a little bit of cleaning, oftentimes those cliffs yield great climbing with a little bit of effort. But you just wouldn't be able to do that from the ground because it's too dangerous. And it is more adventurous to climb from the bottom up. I mean, going ground up on on big routes, going ground up on, on, on really any climb is more adventurous, more exciting, more of a personal experience. But if your goal is to create a high quality and, and safe sport route, it's typically easier to achieve that by coming in from above. And like really the ground up ethic stems out of alpinism and mountaineering where you have to start at the bottom. Like you, you can't climb to the top of the mountain. You wouldn't climb to the top of the mountain and wrap down the thing you wanted to climb because you can't do that, right? It's not even a possibility. So it was something that as people turned to rock climbing from alpinism, it got carried with it. Yeah. The sport wasn't growing crazy popular, but it was, you know, starting to get a little bit more popular. There was bound to be someone young who didn't live close to good granite that had a suboptimal cliff, you know, right near them that was either overhanging or a little bit chossy, where the ground up tactics just wouldn't work. For a long time, all I was doing was just following what other people had done. I went to school at the University of Oregon and there was a little crack climbing area there. And I, I got pretty good at pin scars. Pin scars are the little flaring pockets left behind by pitons in the days before nuts and cams. Uh, looking back at it, it's kind of pathetic, but that was probably what I was best at in all of my climbing mm. was climbing, jamming my you know pinkies into into uh, pin scars. If you're cli- if you were a climber in the '80s, in the early '80s, that in the United States, um, you you I mean, you could have been a boulderer, but if you actually did routes, uh, you pretty much were a traditional crack climber. That's mm-hmm. all the hard, famous routes. That's what we aspire to do. Go to Yosemite, do all the one-pitch, iconic crack climbs. Yeah, that's interesting because that's a perspective that's really changed over time. I would say probably the average climber in the U.S. nowadays has never even felt a pin scar. You know, has never never quite crushed their fingers into a little tiny pocket quite like that. So do you remember what your first new route at Smith was? Like, at what point did you start opening routes? first bolt I put in was definitely... Uh, it's a direct start to King Kong over on Monkey Face, uh, a route nobody ever does. It's all overgrown, but it was done by hand. I didn't know what I was doing. It took a long time. Um, I, at that moment, it wasn't like, wow, I have found my my calling. You know, it was just put in a bolt. And then uh, the main climber at that time was a climber from Portland. And I guess he had heard about how we put in the bolt and we just rappelled down and put in the bolt. And he was not happy. He kind of let us know that's not how you do things. Did that change how you do things? I mean, did you actually respond to that kind of feedback? No, not really. Um, He wasn't really around. What was a great thing about Smith Rock and kind of what happened there, part of why 
things unfolded the way they did at Smith Rock is that we were so us we were so far isolated from everybody. I mean, there were no climbers, there were no mentors. We were just there alone, figuring out what to do. So there was nobody to tell us no. That's not the way to do things. If there would have been somebody there climbing, an active climber that I would have really respected, I would have listened to him. I, I'm not that much of a rebel. So, so uh, you know, talk about that process. Like, how did you get good at sport climbing? Like, how you know, how did you become a sport climber? If Smith Rock had been a place where there were hundreds of cracks, I, I never would have become a sport climber. I I would have been more than content just to climb cracks, but mm. I you ran out and there and the. Once you started doing things that, that hadn't been nailed, where they weren't smooth pin scars, they were just jagged, sharp finger cracks that <laughs> yes. were, they just weren't fun. And so I was doing those things and kind of suffering. And then I'd look around and like, wow, what about that arete? Or what about this face? And so um, it was fortunate that I made that change. If I wouldn't have, uh, I would have just run out of stuff. I would have figured out some other um, thing to do with my life. After the break, Alan Watts starts breaking all the rules. And spoiler alert, the results are pretty good. It was a, a lot of coincidences that led to everything that happened at Smith Rock. And, and looking back, it almost seems like a story that um, was made up. <laughs> Coincidence number one. A highly motivated kid decides he wants to grow up to be a rock climber. It's the 1970s, and he's in rural Oregon. He happens to live 20 miles away from a beautiful rock formation that other climbers overlook. Number two. On May 24, 1960, two women from Madras, population 1500, share a room at a Central Oregon maternity ward. That day, each has a son. One is Alan, the other is Bill Ramsey. Alex, who is Bill Ramsey? Bill Ramsey is a bit of a legend for his insane workouts and his training ethic and just his whole approach to climbing where he trains a lot, tries really hard, climbs hard routes. Uh, he went on to become a philosophy professor and developed a lot of the hard sport climbing in the Red River Gorge. He now lives in Las Vegas. I actually climb with him fairly frequently. And he's in his 60s and he still climbs 514. So he's been uh, climbing at a very high level for a very long time. To go climbing, ideally, you need another freakishly motivated and psyched person. And Bill Ramsey is fucking psyched. Alan and Bill end up being roommates at the University of Oregon, where they start climbing at a tiny, dare I say, podunk crag called the Columns right in downtown Eugene. Seriously, this crag kind of sucks, but people love it. There, by some twist of fate, they fall under the tutelage of Chris Jones. John Gill, the father of American bouldering, thought Jones was one of the strongest climbers of his generation. Jones mostly bouldered after miraculously surviving a 150-foot ground fall in Yosemite. He ends up Alan and Bill's mentor. They build a tolerance for painful cracks and tiny holds. Bill would pour salt in his raw wounds on his fingers. Like I said, fucking psyched. In the waning years of the 1970s, first years of the 80s, they finish off some of the last obvious cracks at Smith. And then, there's not really anything left if they want to follow the rules. So what was the first uh, full route that you bolted? Like at what point did you start just equi- equipping a full face of bolts? 
The first thing I bolted that was completely just all bolts was uh, what's called Watts Tots uh, in the dihedrals. I bolted that in the summer of 82, uh, tried it, and it was just seemed too hard. And But I was climbing a lot at that point and getting better. And I think it was February of 83, I, I did that. I actually did uh, Watts Tots and Chain Reaction, which is kind of the that became sort of the poster child for American sport climbing. I did that actually the next day in February 83. And so there was just a big shift from what I was doing to, you know, those routes, especially chain reaction because it was overhanging and it just was modern. I mean, even now it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's really short, but it's a modern looking route. It's like, wow, if this is going to, if I can do this, I can do, and I'm just looking all around, I can do all these things. Wrapping and drilling bolts by hand, the classics began to unfold. Darkness at noon, heinous cling, karate wall, latest rage. The grades began creeping upward. Watts had a system. Wrap in, suss out the face, drill bolts by hand, then work or practice the moves until he could link them together on lead. It was a new, revolutionary, totally unique, and maybe just a little bit of a middle finger to the older generation. Unbeknownst to Alan and crew, the exact same thing was unfolding across the Atlantic. Nineteen eighty-five was a big year for climbing. That spring, the late Wolfgang Gulich established the world's first five fourteen punks in the gym in Australia's Arapiles. That summer, Watts climbed the east face of the Monkey at five thirteen D, which was the hardest route in America. Globally, Gulich was regarded as a visionary and the world's strongest climber. In the U.S., to climbing's establishment, Watts was a young, annoying anomaly, if they were feeling gracious. If they weren't, he was a stain on climbing's soul and should be slandered into falling in line with tradition. The funny thing was that they were going about their business the exact same way. Alan started making road trips to California to see how he would fare on the standard-setting crack climbs that he had dreamed of doing as he grew as a climber. So what inspired you to go take on you know, hard crack climbs like that if you were already establishing some of the hardest sport routes in the world at Smith at the same time? Because I was a trad climber. <laughs> I, at heart, I was a trad climber. Um, really, those were, you know, you, you have... you. You grow up, you're a kid, and you grow up dreaming of certain route time. It's like, if I could do any route in the world, what route would I want to do? It'd be like, well, Grand Illusion. You know, that was, that's a route that I'd heard about. And so those were my, the things that I dreamed about. Because of what happened at Smith Rock, I, the whole rest of my life, I'm always known as this sport climber. And, but the truth be told, I was a trad climber, a much better trad climber doing sport climbs it was stuff i did at smith rock but there were no it was there were no other sport climbs around the country he went on a tear sessioning through california's 513 traditional test pieces grand illusion crack of the 80s the renegade cosmic debris I, at that point i was as good as, as any crack climber in, in in the world i don't think there's any question about that but um i had a period of about 2 years where I was kind of the only one that was a full-time climber at this sport climbing place. So I had all these sport climbs. And if you 
you know, when you can hang on the rope and work out moves and do all the little sport climbing tricks, you know, and I pretty much employed every single trick in the, in the book. And, um, when you're climbing that way and nobody else is, you get good <laughs> at every, and you know, you definitely get good and you, you pull ahead of other people. And so, and I climbed, I mean, I was climbing 300, 325 days a year. I mean, that was all I was doing. And um, so, yeah, I, for a few years, I got I got good. And then it wasn't until like, oh, shit, you know, people are you, climbing the same way. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. I, then you realize, wow, I guess I'm, you know, I'm not quite as, as spectacular as I thought I was. And I really, I, I, I sensed it. I knew it wasn't really the, the way that people, uh, that you were supposed to climb, but it, it wasn't until I started going to Yosemite, for instance, and doing routes there um, and starting to do hard routes there that I had people let me know that what I was doing was not okay. Like I did cosmic debris just a few months after I did chain reaction. And oh, yeah. of course on that, I, you know, hang dog and, uh, working out, you know, the, the moves and, and all that sort of stuff. I ended up, that's back in the days of EBs and it was really hard. And so I just, um, it's like, there's no reason to wear shoes. And so I just did it barefooted, which was really a whole lot easier because you could just jam your toes in the crack. But, um, but that wasn't, it was the fact that I would hang. I, I don't remember when I was first called a hang dog, but um, initially it was not a compliment. Alex, do you even hear the term hang dog anymore like i don't at all like no people say working a sport route but uh, you know like nobody even knows what a hang dogger is anymore okay so like, what is it explain it hang dogging is a derogatory term for somebody that hangs on the rope to work on a route which nowadays doesn't even make sense because literally everybody does that but you know in an era where you were expected to lower as soon as you fell it was considered very bad form to keep hanging on the rope to work on the climb it's so funny because like if you look at it, like right if you look at it, if your goal is to solve a problem why would you go all the way back to the beginning right yeah it doesn't make any sense like yeah if you're trying to figure out how to climb a hard thing why would you go down as soon as you fail once it it is interesting how much the rules the norms the process can become a part of a person's identity and when that shifts it like like it's hard for people to change or adapt right well, or it suddenly makes them feel unimportant. It's like if, you know, if if your identity is wrapped up as, as who you are as a climber and the rules of climbing start to change and suddenly other people are much better than you because they're playing by different rules, that's pretty threatening. And I mean, that's definitely what was happening in the, the sort of climbing culture wars as sport climbing took off is a lot of the strongest traditional climbers were personally threatened because they just weren't the best climbers anymore because people using different tactics could suddenly climb much harder. And rather than change with the times and just immediately change tactics, you know, they just tried to, to fight the change. So, I mean, that's kind of the nature of traditionalism, you know, the whole like just trying to cling to the old way. It's like, it really just makes you think of modern politics a little bit. Where it's like, if you're trying to cling to the past, it's, it's rarely the, the way forward. How did word spread about what was happening at Smith Rock? Yeah, it was, it was kind of funny because it spread, it spread slowly. I mean, I would say a a turning point. I think it was in the let's see, May, May or so of 1985. Uh, Kim Kerrigan, Johnny Woodward, and Jeff Wigand 
came to Smith Rock and they were the first, you know, non-Americans to come and do some of the routes. This crew of Australian climbers were pushing the sport down under and utilizing the same exact tactics. And the same thing was also happening in Europe. All of a sudden, Alan was connecting the dots. The same idea was developing in parallel across continents. We had a lot of conversations and it just kind of, I, that's for the, really the first time I knew about what, how people were climbing outside of the United States. And the first time I realized, whoa, the whole world is, is basically pursuing sport climbing. And here I am here in the U.S. and I'm fighting this battle with traditional climbers. But elsewhere, that battle is, is not being fought. They're just, they're just bolting sport climbs. Later that summer, there was an Austrian photographer, uh, Heinz Zack. And he just showed up at Smith Rock. I was um, just walking up one day and this friend of mine came up and said, hey, there's this guy who's uh, in the parking lot and he's asking about if you're around. And I went up and talked to the guy and he's like, I have come to I have come from Austria to film you on your hardest climbs. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed like, really? And at first I didn't even I thought he was just a kook. But he then said, like, well, you know, I just took pictures of Wolfgang Gulich. Um, on Punks in the Gym in Australia. And immediately that was like, whoa, you know Wolfgang? Because he was my hero. So I agreed to take some pictures. He went back to Austria. I didn't think anything of it. And a few months later, uh, Mountain Magazine was like the kind of the biggest magazine in the world at that point. And I was on the cover of Mountain Magazine, this iconic picture with the had a yellow shirt on and this blue sky background, you know, right on the... the shot you've seen of chain reaction a thousand times but there was you know that was on the cover and then there was a feature article about smith rock at the same time right around then there was also a feature article in outside magazine about smith rock and about me it was called king of the hang dogs and <laughs> so somehow between those two it went from having almost nobody there to like in uh a few months later, there were times I'd be at Smith Rock and I'd walk through the dehedrals and there'd be all these climbers and I'd realize, whoa, I'm the only one speaking English. So it just changed instantly. I mean, once it changed, it, it never went back and it just it kept accelerating. And then everybody, every climber came through Smith Rock. Every famous climber around the world made that pilgrimage. After the break, Alan discusses regrets, and Alex takes a 50-foot whipper. Americans were falling behind. Standards in Europe were rising dramatically as hangdogging and sport climbing were accepted with little friction. In 1986, J.B. Trebeau, who I felt like we heckled a bunch on season one, arrived at Smith and completed to bolt or not to be, America's first 514. It validated what was happening. You had to wake up to the fact that sport climbing was the path forward. Did the attention that Smith got and, and as it became an international destination, did it improve the way you were treated by the broader community in the States? I don't know. There was a lot of opposition and a lot of, um, I wasn't 
well liked in the 80s as at once I started traveling around and climbing because I was represented this new style that was flew in the face of tradition. Probably the biggest turning point is once I started realizing, whoa, this is exactly, this is how everybody else around the world is climbing. And at that point, if I go to Yosemite and I have somebody call me a hangdog, um, it just bounces right off of me because, hey, that's, you know, this is, I climb the same, same way that Wolfgang Gulich is climbing. Yeah, there was some confidence. I was confident enough to be able to um, just pursue what I was doing and not look back. But it did bother me. Um, it did bother me the, I mean, climbing, it's, it's, what's great about climbing is you go somewhere and you hang out with climbers and just the camaraderie and all the, uh, you know, that's just, it's fun to hang out with climbers and talk with climbers. And I didn't like going to Yosemite and, and not being liked and having people confront me and get in, in my face, get right up in my face and yell at me. It was like, I don't, I don't need that. Did it, did it, did that take away like the mad, I mean, did that make you stop going to the valley or did you? I never went to the going? valley after I did stigma in 85. I have not, I never went back. So, and I'd gone there every year. I'd spent a month in Yosemite every year uh, from 1978, I think on. And so Yosemite, I loved Yosemite. I, and I, I regret that. I really, I should have, um, I mean, at that point, uh, I foolishly thought of Yosemite as being kind of past it. Like, you know, there's new places to climb. There's harder climbs. And I, I wish I would have thought, you know, hey, look at that. Look at El Cap. Maybe the South of A might go free. Maybe, you know, I, I wish I would have entered that realm, but I never did. I just, it's like, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, it's not fun to go to Yosemite. I don't like having messages put on my car. I don't feel like you know, I'm there with my girlfriend and I don't want to get, it's just awkward to get confronted all the time. So I don't, I was like done with it. Have, have you considered going back now that, now that you're an adult? <laughs> yeah, I know. I would love to go back. Um, I would love to go back. I, I think about Yosemite. I loved it there. I mean, I have so many great memories. You left um, climbing for a while. Like, what what happened? You know, climbing. I was very passionately into it, and um, once I started having significant problems with arthritis and um, finger problems, it just wasn't working. I mean, it, it just hurt. It hurt to climb, and so I was just kind of done. It was like that was great. Those were really fun years, but um, it's in the past. In the in the nineties and into two thousands, I, I I wasn't climbing that much. I was raising my family, and I, I I went ten years, and I never looked at a climbing magazine. I mean, I just didn't even pay attention to climbing. And it wasn't until I, you know, there started to be anniversary things like, hey, twenty years ago, sport climbing started, <laughs> and so then I would get interviewed, and it's like, oh wow, people are still, um, they they they, they remember they did something on. 10 climbers who influenced the the sport. And I was one of the 10 climbers, which really kind of surprised me. It's like, wow, I'm, you know, that was kind of cool. And it's like you're a high school reunion or whatever. You're suddenly drawn back into it and you're like, wow, I used to do this thing. Ex exactly. Yeah. And then when I started getting back into climbing and just kind of being around climbers, I, I found that 
I was, uh, you know, people would say, hey, thanks for what you did. Or, you know, it was, I almost never met anybody that was a nasty. Everybody seemed to get along better. It seemed like it, all of climbing, people just, there was less conflict. It seemed to be like a better, I don't know. It just, uh, they, it, it, it was more evolved. It was, everybody was just encouraging everybody. It was just kind of a better scene. And now I'm actually tremendously grateful because I have a connection with climbers. You know, it's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm at this point, what, who would be my people? Who would be my, what would be my connection, social connection, if it wasn't for climbing? And now it, that connection will, it's there forever, wherever, you know, wherever I go, I just, I see climbers and I go up and I talk to them and there's just this instant bond. It's, it's wonderful. It's the best part of it for me. I mean, it's a big stretch to say what I did in the 80s had any impact on what you did when you free soloed El Cap, but there's just a little tiny little piece, a little tiny piece where I was part of that evolution. That feels good. I, I totally buy that. That actually is something that I, I look back at and I'm like, hey, that's, that's good. That was, um, you know, that, that was a good thing that I did. Alex, I'm curious where you'd think we would be if Watts's thinking hadn't won out. We could have almost ended up with having like British traditional ethics in a way. I mean, I think a lot of big developments in climbing still would have happened, but just much more slowly. Like LCAT probably would have been free climbed eventually. It just would have happened in different style and much more slowly. You know, Lynn Hill probably wouldn't have free climbed the nose in a day, at least not for another 25 years <laughs> like in, in which case i don't think it'd be lynn doing it at that point I mean, especially for for a modern climber and, and for somebody like me as a modern professional climbing climber sport climbing is sort of the the bread and butter the the meat and potatoes or whatever it's kind of the staple it's like the thing that i do full-time year-round to maintain a base as a climber you know like most cutting-edge alpinists sport climb in their off season because the other forms of climbing it's just hard to do them non-stop because they're too high impact they're too difficult I mean, you know, people can and they do. I mean, some people boulder year round. It's funny having gone just back through the history and seeing some of the criticism of the sport routes of that era. Some of the older climbers would be like, it's not adventurous. It's dumbing. It's down. It's too safe. And and I like almost guarantee you that those older climbers did not climb those routes because I think if you, you know, if you've tried one of those classic Watts routes, like full, the full heinous cling, it is safe, but you do not feel safe that is not the emotion that is going through your head yeah it's like pretty full-on it's not like chill sport climbing dude it's, it's funny because 90 sport climbing is like that. i went to clark mountain for the first time uh last weekend and that, that's kind of like 90s sport climbing but i tried this uh this route called tusk it's a 14b sort of vertical it's not it's probably 20 degrees overhanging but it climbs like a vertical wall small holds the bolts are so far apart i took probably a 50 footer off the middle of the route because there's like almost no rope drag. My belayer was kind of small and I was, you know, it's just hard to get to the next bolt. And I fell off and I, I whipped like the whole length of the route. I was like, this is totally insane. My belayer was sucked all the way through the first bolt, which is high off the ground too. And you're like, geez, this is so, it's like, you don't really climb sport routes like that anymore. Do you think we would have gotten to sport climbing as, a, as an American climbing community if, if we hadn't had, if Alan Watts 
you know, hadn't been this 10 year old that wanted to become a rock climber and did all the right things. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's kind of right place, right time, right set of circumstances. But I think that if he didn't exist, somebody else would have developed the climbing elsewhere in a similar way. You know, it's like, I think that the ideas made sense, the the timing was right, the, you know, standards are changing. It's like, if it wasn't Alan Watts, it would have been somebody else. I, I keep thinking of the Owens River Gorge, which is kind of another sort of, you know, because it was uh, owned by the LA Department of Water and Power, and there are already hydroelectric plants inside it and abandoned mining and ruins. And it's like, it's a heavily industrial feeling area to begin with. You know, it's like, I mean, there are just bolts everywhere and nobody really cares because either way, it's it's a bit of a lost area. You know, it's not really... It's not like Yosemite or something. It's like it's and it's pretty scrappy rock too. So it's not really great for track climbing. You know, it basically has a lot of the same elements that Smith Rock has, except that it's just uh, not as good. If Alan Watson and Smith Rocks hadn't existed, you know, some local kid in Owens would have been developing that a little sooner or, or whatever else. You know, I mean, there are plenty of areas like that around the country. That said, though, this is a totally different story. If Alan Watts and Bill Ramsey grew up to climb just five ten, right? This became a theme because, like, for a bit, Alan was one of the best, if not the best, in the U.S. Yeah, I think it definitely helps Alan Watts' credibility that he could climb the hardest routes in the world because of his uh, embrace of new school tactics. You know, it's like, by embracing a new way of climbing, he was able to outclimb everybody else. And that kind of performance always gets attention. Like, it makes me think of that saying, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? And sometimes <laughs> there's just moments where it's probably better to be right. You know, you have to sort of assume the costs of that. And, that, you know, like, that's a risk. Yeah. And, I mean, it's like, I, th- I think he had a vision for for how climbing could be. But more importantly, he he was sending, you know, I mean, that's kind of always at the heart of it. It's like, he's doing hard routes. He's doing the hard traditional routes. He's doing the new hard sport routes. It's like, he's achieving everything that he wants to as a climber. And so reputation and, and climbing culture aside, he's sending. So who cares? Alan Watts definitely took big personal risks in, in developing sport climbing to Smith and, and big reputational hits. And I'm sure that the constant slander and, you know, uh, you know, maligning like behind his back, you know, people sort of criticizing him nonstop and, and questioning his ethics and all that. I'm sure it took a toll. I mean, it's part of the reason that he stepped away from climbing for a long time. I mean, he's kind of like an artist who's ahead of his time. You know, it's like, it's nice to see the broader communities coming full circle and recognizing his contributions and what he did for the sport. It's like, at least he's lived long enough to see that he was right. You know, it's like, it's a nice, it's, it's nice to see an artist recognized while they're still alive. <laughs> Thank you, Alan, for sharing your story and for your contribution to our sport. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced and edited by Lauren Delani Miller and me, Fitzcahal, with additional mixing and editing by Matt Martin. Additional production help by Evan Phillips, Austin Syadak, and Anya Miller. Music today from Amy Stolzenbach, Brendan O'Connell, Cordy Lazars, and me. Our executive producers are Becca Call and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape Then Beer, and Jonathan Redsick and Ben Andy for RXR Sports. Thanks for listening. 